Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, but tonight, we are so thrilled to have uh, Michelle Ladiole uh, with her new collection of stories, Widow. Um, Michelle is a professor of English at UC Irvine and the co-director of the programs in writing there. Um, and her novel, Even Now, won the gold medal for fiction, Commonwealth Club of California, 1991. Um, and this uh, latest collection, um, Widow, has been getting fabulous reviews and is just a beautiful book. Um, so with that, I will welcome Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. I think they're brave to podcast when they don't know what I'm going to read. I'm going to read you three pieces, and I think the only thing that that you might want um, to be reminded of is that caduceus is the symbol for the medical profession, with um, either one snake or two snakes wrapped around um, a staff. Eden. It is an Eden. And that Couperin, of course, is a French composer. Um, but I'm going to read you Pink first. Pink. Within the museum's permanent collection, another collection, and so small a subset, its entirety takes up a room no grander than a kitchen, and something accurate in this, as it is a room of cups and saucers, art of the cup, a history of design, 1860 to 1960. The room is nestled at the back of the museum like a tiny, almost vestigial organ amid great lungs and systolic heart, amid Greek antiquities, Italian Renaissance, colonial America. She can find this room blindfolded in the dark, and the room itself is a little dark, though roseate too. And the young woman loves drawing her friends into its closeness, their chuckles at the cup shaped like a dice on a saucer of porcelain playing cards, a spry red devil for a cup handle. They marvel politely, marvel only because she is herself marveling excitedly at the cup in the shape of a French champagne cork on a bistro ladition saucer. They murmur appreciatively, though only mildly so, at the slick, angular example of Ger German moderne, at the unabashedly bosomy French belle poke cup with its dragonfly handle. There is always a high, unbidden amusement at one display, and she feels their immediate and compelling comfort upon seeing the fiesta wear cup, the diner, china, so familiar, so quotidienne, they cannot help but laugh and point, of course point. This cup takes dominion everywhere, she thinks, disappointed. It's so American, produced in staggering quantities and aggressively ingenuous colors, cobalt, chartreuse, persimmon. 
But she herself likes that just yesterday the new Betty Crocker catalog came, fiesta wear its blousy colors soliciting across several pages, and even less expensive with points cut from biscuit boxes or cake mixes. The design of this very same cup before her now in the museum can be had for $10.48, indeed for $5.74 if one has 25 points to throw at the transaction. Sometimes she regales her friends with this information, makes them laugh by suggesting a little more baking on their part, a return to stick to your ribs, flapjacks, and they too can own something valued by a curator. Her friends glance at one or two more cups as they leave, the Italian demitasse or the regal Austrian chocolate cup, and then she is once again standing here alone, listening to their footsteps and her arts and crafts movement in Great Britain and America. She knows a poet, Molly, who ventures that the greatest sentence in the English language just might be the one spoken dozens of times a day at the Disneyland ride. Please wait till your teacup has come to a complete stop. <laughs> so always the young woman thinks to say to her friends, you have not waited. You have not given this room enough time. I have so much to tell you. But she never holds them, in fact. She motions them on, her hands and face conveying that she will join them in time. She understands their interest is minor, understands also that the intimacy of this room makes them uncomfortable and that they do not know why. She moves from a faience dart cup with a fanciful earthenware lip folded in and fluted out to a pink cup of porcelain almost translucent and in the shape of a cactus flower. She loves this cup's pink, how very pretty it is, the pink of peonies, sweet pea, lysianthus. She has grown tired of being at baby showers for little girls in which a bullion relieved appreciation is heaped at clothes that are black or green or yellow, the thank God no pink reaction. She is tired of this misogyny, this judgment that is somehow not judgment, because somehow in the moment it is taste or style, even unbelievably social progress. She loves this pink and in the shape of a flower. Flowers are genitals, her friend Julia had said once. That's why we give them to our lovers. If he were here ever or now, Standing beside her, she would tell him how she had learned the expression shows pink many years ago from a young man who relished telling her and whom she relished remembering. His name was Brian, and somehow they had gotten on the subject of Hustler and Playboy magazines, and the phrase shows pink or rather does not show pink came into the conversation, and she had stopped him and then laughed, getting into it, though not before he'd, I'm sorry, getting it, though not before he'd seen that it was news for her, this phrase, its meaning. Playboy magazine does not show pink, the inner roseate folds of the labia minora, and though technically and within the trade this is true, the blushy, soft, porcelainized photography seems to her forthrightly labial, does the, as does the lighting of this room in the museum. This room shows pink, she would say to him, were he standing here beside her now, her finger on the glass before the translucent pink cactus flower cup. She would say this, laughingly, to say much more. If he were here, now, she would tell him about the word porcelain, the word coming from the Latin, porcellus, little pig, vulva, which was, she felt sure of it, an affectionate term for the female vulva, porcelina, those beautiful translucent pinks, labial, suckling, piglet, shote, sweet, in one sense, porcelina, an early version of la chatte, or pussy, porcelina, little pig. 
less sweet, certainly, in another sense of livestock, chattel. But she can love the pink of pork, of ham, a prosciutto di parma, can see this spectrum as labial, sexual, can save her prosciutto wrapped around effusively vaginal figs or fica, the current Italian word for female genitalia. If he were here now, she would tell him the word porcelana in Italian means cowrie shell and derives also from porcella, little pig, vulva, because of the shell's resemblance to female pudenda, a resemblance evincing itself in two ways, the cloven vaginal cleft and the shell's beautiful porcelain surface speckled brown and taupe and blushing pink near its opening, near its introitis, the Latin for vaginal opening, the word introite being also the song sung at the beginning of an Anglican service or of a mass, the entering in. She liked cathedrals better this way, liked churches better this way, as an entering into herself, into a circuitry of reproduction, not a system of birth or production, but of reproduction, the seeds in the dark ovarian caves dropping, one here, one there, a constancy of possibility happening and happening and happening like ocean tide, that hydraulic loyalty grinding cowrie shells, all those little vulvae until they were sand, were clay, were taken up newly plastic and made into porcelain shapes and fired, become teacups, become the intimacy of lips, of his lips upon her own. She would tell him all this. She thinks of dying sometimes, of a last will and testament, of cremation, the bone ash of her incinerated body mixed with kaolin, china stone, silicate, lime. Oh, what potter would take on this commission for a lonely man? And yet, why not? His lover set upon the table, tea set, chocolate set, coffee set. Why not lips upon her always, his tongue against the thin bone china lips her fired bones would make? When he kisses porcelain, he kisses cowrie shell, vulva, little pig, pink, bones, her. Why not begin every morning entering her? Behold, I make all things new this room of cups, no bigger than a kitchen. Thank you. <laughs> Kept me quiet. <laughs> Sorry, does that mean you couldn't hear this? I'm sorry? Sorry about that. Oh, no, 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 it's all right. <laughs> Caduceus. It was too early to call to set an appointment. Too early to deal with that office's feckless secretaries. Too early to be in a bad mood. And now the kettle's harmonica whistle began to hum, giving the harpsichord, picking out the beautiful couperin, some competition. Soon the kettle whistle would insist that she turn and walk to the stove and turn the gas off. Okay then, she said to herself, do this, you can do this. But she didn't. She eyed the doctor's card propped at midnight against the coffee grinder so that she could not miss it as she made coffee in the morning. And now she was making coffee, or starting to, and it was bright out, and the kettle mounted its pitch. 
She stood before the kitchen window, holding the handset. It did not turn to the stove. She wished it were evening now, wished for the great relief of the calendar inking itself out, of day done and night coming, of ice cubes knocking about in a glass beneath the whiskey spilling in, that fine brown affirmation of need. Instead, across the street, the crepe myrtle shone livid in the sunlight, and the woman with her prodigious bosom walking her jaunty French bulldog with a similar chest failed to amuse her, when always in the past, always. Some morning she called her sister in New York. It's like they're both wearing torpedo bras. It's just the funniest sight. <laughs> her heart was racing and she felt odd, jangly, chemical, everything in overdrive because of this radical thyroid she possessed. The doctor wanted to radiate it, but no, she didn't think she'd agree to that or to drinking the radioactive isotope, that wowie zowie cocktail she'd take a powder on too. You'll stress your heart. He kept saying to her, there will be damage. She had tried not to laugh in his face. Damage. How clever and heart-stoppingly witless they were, these tenders of the body. How poised for perception that they'd never tumble to. And she had tried to check herself, tried to talk herself down off the jagged precipice of her anger. He doesn't know, she'd say. He didn't kill him. It was the other doctors. This doctor is doing his best by you, but the rigid honesty of the precipice was better than the complicated emptiness of home, of trying to get on with one's life, of the pack of lies one told oneself in order to do so. She listened to the stark, clear soprano voice singing Leçon de Tenebre, listening to the lamentations being sung. And envisioned, the one, and envisioned the one candle in church on Maundy Thursdays being extinguished, and then another, and another, until the snuffer came down on the 15th candle, and there was just the cool, somber enormity of the stone church, and the fine, fine libidinal darkness. And she felt drawn to the darkness, drawn to how surprising and delicious darkness could be, coming from a movie onto the sidewalk, elation in her voice, oh, it's dark out, or sitting for a time in the garden, drinking wine, her fork stirring every now and then, some bite brought to her mouth, and then the sudden realization, oh, it's gotten dark, and it could be so lovely, and seem so very precious, the palm trees perfectly blacked in across the sky. She thought about her hand, invisible, as it reached into his dark closet and moved his shirts along the rod, his shirts still fresh from the laundry in their clear plastic sheaths. That darkness, that darkness too, was lovely, as was his smell in the dark closet, his smell still there after so many years, that darkness, his death, and the solace she took in his clothes, or his signature in his books, the black ink and darkness too, closed between book covers, or the many birthday cards he had written her that lived beneath her folded lingerie, sliding their infinitesimal distances each morning as she pulled open the dresser drawers. Baby, they said, or sweetheart, my lover, my friend, all the sentiments kept in the sweet, cool darkness called intimacy. And sure, sometimes she slid them from their tiny envelopes and lifted them into the dim light of their bedroom sconces, and the words were as alive to her as they had been opening them that first time, his happy face smiling at her. He loved giving her gifts. 
Their last moments had been in darkness too, midnight, his body and hers, and the long, precious ingot of darkness that stretched between their bodies laid against each other, that dark, that dark too. But now her body was surrounded by light. She set the phone down awkwardly on the tile counter and thought that was another reason to distrust plastic, its insipid little clatterings. And so then she did turn and move to the stove. She reached for the screeching kettle but caught herself and took up a hot pad instead and now lifted the kettle from the burner. She tapped her finger down against the small lever on the kettle's spout and the whistle stopped. She hadn't even warmed a mug yet nor put coffee grounds in a filter. She hadn't touched that goddamn card with its insignia of twisted snakes. Nor had she turned the flame off beneath the spider, and she watched the gas burn blue and coral and without purpose, without anything on top of it to boil. The flame might as well have been cold, but it wasn't, and she knew that if she set her hand down over it, her skin would crisp and burn, would become a kind of steak with too many bones. Could she eat it, she wondered, the thumb and four digits, a little sauce, some potatoes mashed with olive oil and garlic to mound up beneath the charred palm. All the bright, white things she was to trust and love, doctors doctoring during daylight hours, the hardy, bleached fabric of their lab coats, their bright, practiced smiles under the bright, white, fluorescent lights, and the bright, white prescription pads, and all the bright, white pages the drug studies had been printed on, and not one of these bright, white nights had ever contacted her to ask her what she thought had happened to her husband. No, instead, one of the brightest in their field, a Beverly Hills cardiologist, had derided her for having medical coverage from Kaiser, an HMO, this doctor she had paid $1,675 to for a consultation on her husband's death. He had derided her, had said in one breath, what quality of care did you expect from an HMO? And no, the care your husband received at Kaiser was just fine. But the care her husband had received was not just fine. In fact, he had really not had any care, just one prescription drug put on top of another and no doctor paying any attention. Nine months on a drug at its highest dosage, a drug to keep him well, a prophylactic, and no doctor bothered a checkup, a monitor. Only a coroner in his windowless lab had been honest. I see deaths from prescription drugs all the time, he affirmed, but usually antidepressants. She turned the knob on the stove slowly, and the high flames guttered and shrank and disappeared, and then fire took up again in the center ring, a small simmer of a flame, and then no flame at all, just the black iron spider against the white enamel stove. She walked across the kitchen to the cupboard and reached down one of their mugs, always a set they bought, too. Their summer mugs, or the Christmas mugs, or the two beautiful Majolica mugs garnered on a trip to San Francisco, all there in the cupboard like old couples, their handles arm in arm. She had tried to buy just one mug for herself, a special mug just for her, and not one of a set. But that mug had leapt from her hands and shattered so joyously into the sink the second morning she'd had it. And she was not a dense woman, not impervious to omen or implication. And my God, the sink seemed besotted with its blue shards. Okay, she had said to this too. Okay, 
because how else could she read this obvious archaeology? How else? The shards said, you will be alone now, but never alone again from the company of loss. She listened to the Couperin, listened to Jeremiah's lament, how lonely sits Jerusalem that was full of people. She has become like a widow. How singular this sounded being sung in Latin, the hopsichord beneath. And she thought that somehow the contemporary world forbade lamentation, forbade the rending of clothing and the gnashing of teeth. And it was something she had never allowed herself either, any public display of grief. And yet one man had written on a blog that she had sobbed at the funeral in front of 600 people. But he was writing out his own fictions. The most she had allowed herself was a word choked on here and there. What she had allowed to show was her anger which of course was so much less acceptable. Only God was allowed his anger, only God. Now she ran the faucet until hot water came and she placed a mug beneath the stream, one of a pair they'd bought in a small shop in Tahoe City, Italian, and painted with white flowers against a lattice of yellow and green briars. Its mate sat on the shelf in the cupboard, sat there as though it looked down with propriety upon the coffee making. Okay, she thought, you get the card. And she picked the doctor's card up from its place before the coffee grinder, her thumb atop the twisted snakes, and pulled open the glass-fronted cupboard and dropped it into the mug. Stay there for a while, she murmured. And then she took down a brown paper filter and a filter cone. In the grinder, there was ground coffee already, and a powder snowed darkly down upon her hand as she lifted the lid and emptied the coffee as dark as glacial soil into the filter. Sometimes ground coffee smelled like tuna, one of the odd truths of the world, but this morning it smelled like the rich Italian roast that it was. Why go, she thought. Why go to a doctor at all? She knew a woman named Catherine who hadn't been to one for almost 50 years, and Catherine's own father had been a doctor. But there was a bit of the mortification of the flesh about Catherine, too. And unlike Catherine, she wasn't exactly ready to hang herself upside down like a flower to dry, her head full of blood, her body friable. Desiccation would come whether she exalted it or not. She emptied the hot water from the mug and then fitted the filter to its lip and passed across the kitchen to the stove. How beautiful the hot water made the coffee grounds as she bloomed them. First a small amount of water, just to moisten, just to plump. And then she swamped the cone with water and stood, waiting, the kettle held aloft. And then she swamped the filter again. How much damage to the heart, she wondered. And then she knew what for. The doctor knew why she'd make an appointment and go. Information. She was going to the doctor for information. And then she laughed, thinking that was precisely what Eve had been up against with that serpent, too. You surely shall not die. Hadn't that been what that snake had promised also? you. I'm just going to read one more piece, um, which I actually, since there are lovely graduate students here, I actually wrote for a graduate student. Um, 
because I had promised him that he someday would also write a conventional story. <laughs> he really wanted to write a conventional story. And so I got off the phone talking with Max Winner and I said to myself, I don't think you can write a conventional story. What made you think you could promise somebody else they could? So Ben Miller is here too and he doesn't think this is a very conventional story. <laughs> But this is crazy for Max Winter. The students were thanking her and then hugging her, filing out the front door and leaving down the walk. They liked the food, the wheat berry salad and the fennel tart. They liked the beer too and would she go with him to school sometime to hear a reading of one of their plays or a rehearsal, perhaps, ha perhaps have lunch with them, polite. The students were always so polite to her and funny. They made jokes about him that amused her. Of course, they were drama students, and so they were lively and performative, joyfully outrageous, on fire. Did she know that he talked about her in rehearsals, said, I defer to my wife on this? One young woman, she stood so tall, said, You're his example for almost anything having to do with women. The young woman smiled and it was genuine, her ink blue eyes glistening. She was the talent in the group, Benson said, adding, it's too bad she's so tall. Now we know why, said another young woman, and it took her a moment to realize this was a compliment to her, that they understood why she was a measure of womanhood or homemaking or cooking. It referred to so much, this compliment, and she knew they were taking their notes here now in her home, their home, Benson and hers. It made her nervous most times having them here, so many sets of avid eyes. Some of it was sweet attention, the fact that they were at school and away from real homes, stable living situations with full batteries of pots and pans. They hadn't seen a four-square meal in days, nor cloth napkins and glasses that matched. They wandered the house, looking at the paintings, or playing with the wicket in the front door, this bit of theatrical business. And today, Benson had even directed them into their bedroom, really into their walk-in closet, to look at the original playbills from Odette's Clash by Night and Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. So many of them had stood in their bedroom, but one of the young men had plunked down on the bed, drinking his beer. One of his knees hiked up with his boot heel on the bed rail. It's just a length of wood, she said to herself, and his boot heel will do no damage. It was an old, old bed, one that she had brought to the marriage, a spool bed inherited from her southern aunt. They were reproducing them now, though this was an original from Louisiana from the 1870s and made of West Indian mahogany. She hadn't wanted it to be their bed, their marriage bed. It had seemed too grandmotherly, and Benson stretched its entire length and then some, but they had been as poor as these graduate students were now and had been happy to even have a bed. A small white panel truck delivered it to their New York apartment all the way from Shreveport, the men calling ahead to make sure someone was there in the three-story walk-up to receive it. On the busy, filthy sidewalk, when the moving blankets dropped from the turned rungs of the bed's footboard, a check secured on one end with scotch tape stood up like a playing card clothespin to a bicycle spoke. 
On the back of the check was scrawled, buy yourself a good mattress and box spring, one which will take a lot of action. Love taunts a say. <laughs> she hadn't loved the suggestion of her aunt's note and embarrassed her. And even worse was the absurd amount, enough for five mattress sets. She worried that these moving men had read her aunt's ornate scrawl, had laughed their way up the eastern seaboard, and when Benson came striding down the street waving, his face alight, he and the men laughed, and she heard the words, we brought the launch pad to the rocket, and the deep male laughter. And she watched from the window the vigorous handshakes and Benson putting money in their hands. My aunt already paid them, she said, when Benson came up the stairs and in the front door. She tipped them, too. You didn't need to give them money. Oh, why not, Benson had said. They're in New York City. They need to play a bit. She'd felt mean, a check for $5,000 in her hand, and she stood there begrudging these men a little mad money. Of course, she and Benson bought a very fine mattress and box spring, and because of this had used the bed for so long, it became their bed, and then even longer into the years, after they had replaced that initial mattress set, it would have meant something too ominous to have changed out the bed frame, and then what would that preferred bed have been anyway? I can't hear you for this goddamn bed, Benson complained, its squeaking and moaning quickening over the years as the different climates dried out the old wood. Or Benson would ask, amused, is that you or the bed? Or he would ask, his lips against her ear, was it as good for you as it was for the bed? <laughs> But Benson loved Tansasay and would not have hurt her for the world, even if she might never have found out about them purchasing something new and less rickety. It was just something Benson wouldn't do in the world, and of course, she had always agreed, had loved this observance in him. But this summer, in the dense, unnerving heat, Benson moved her against the wall and ran his hands up under her wet arms and then up around her sticky neck. Stop, she pleaded, stop, I'm a sweaty mess. But he wouldn't, and he turned and pressed her into the bed and said, I don't care. You think I care about sweat? I want my mouth on you. That was his expression. He wanted his mouth on her. But she could not understand this desire, could not imagine allowing anything so disgusting. No, she said, pushing his head from between her legs. No, why, mustn't, why must you want this so much? He jerked his face away from her hand. Why, indeed, he said. And then he shifted his weight and rolled away, and she raised her head to see him licking the mahogany rungs of the footboard, chewing the scenery, a phrase she knew from him. And then she said as much, you're chewing the scenery. <laughs> now she shook the hand of the young man who had sat on the bed, the bed that had, strangely, not made a peep. His hand felt grainy and thick and cold, but her hands were always too warm, clammy. I read your books, he said quietly. They were very helpful to my family. Oh, she thought, his hand falling from hers. She was always surprised when someone knew that she had done something other than stand by Benson's side as he bade his students goodbye. It was not Benson who spilled the beans, and her oh was in large measure her surprise that someone yet again had spoken about her, had identified her, what diligent soul in Benson's department took it upon himself. You have a little sister, she asked the young man, or a sister, yes. Yes, he said. She eats now. 
Yes, he said again, sort of. And then he was gone down the steps and she heard his boot heels against the brick, resonant and pronounced, the jostle of the buckles. She liked the way his black leather jacket hiked up his back. She could see his faded blue shirt tail just coming untucked. She liked these students. She liked them all, their tremendous, vulnerable power. Then Benson had her by the shoulders from behind and pulled her into himself and kissed her on the top of the head. I'll be right back in, he said. And because he was an actor and he knew how to breathe, how to enunciate and project, his words blew hot across her scalp as though even before she saw what she was about to see, the fire had begun. Come along, Mercutio, Benson said. That knucklehead Romeo awaits your death. Benson's talent, the tall Megan turned and smiled at her. She clutched her purse to her side, intoned what so many of them had intoned, thank yous, appreciation, and then she passed out the door at Benson's insistence, his arms aloft, directing. The tall Megan bowed awkwardly, a performance stumbling into a funny, drunken walk, and then she hung a moment on the iron gate, delivering lines. No, tis not so deep as a well, nor so wide as a church door, but tis enough, twill serve. Ask for me tomorrow, and you shall find me a grave man. I am peppered. Benson laughed and pulled the front door shut. Inside, it was so suddenly quiet, even the music between tracks, and then slowly the deep sounds of Mingus fingering his bass. She stood looking at the door's panels and the iron wicket that rattled. She could open the little grill and look through, but she thought, no, don't. She walked into the front room and gathered glasses and napkins onto a tray. Two cashews remained in the nut bowl. They looked to her like huge commas, and she leaned down and plucked them from the bowl and ate them. Mercutio's lines, didn't they signal the turning point in the play, the comedy coming, the comedy ending and the tragedy beginning? She moved to the front window and looked out. She thought the talent and Benson well matched. They stood talking, first Megan's head down with her hair falling forward, obscuring her face, and then his face down, and then her hands held behind her back, and her lovely face tilted up to his. Benson knew an audience at his back when he had one, and he never touched her, never even leaned down to kiss her on the cheek, blameless. But this was how she, his wife in the window, knew. All theater people hugged and kissed all the time. They were crazy for it. <laughs> Thank you. Would you like to answer some questions if anybody has any? Are there questions? Everybody knows me so well here. I don't think there are. <laughs> John. I mean, a lot of these stories, you know, this character, she, and another is the young woman. And I was wondering about your choice not to name the character, or if there was ever a name to the name. It was always just she. 
No, there was never a name. Yeah, but she got older. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think I think. Well, you all know this. Some, you're all writers here. Um, you go on intuition so much, you know. And um, I, I um, you know, I always wanted to be very close in on her, and. Um, and a name immediately puts you on the outside of her, of course. You all know this, you know. Um, you immediately then see a person instead of being right there, at, you know. Um, so I think that was certainly my sense, you know. So, um, plus the word she is such a beautiful word, I think. <laughs> so, <laughs> see, everybody knows me, so they know. Why did you Because it's just from, um, from the. White pages instead of from the book. Um, I read the unlawyered edition. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I mean, they didn't take that many things out, but it still feels odd to me, and the cadences and some of the sentences seem odd to me because of uh, the things that the lawyers took out. So, yeah, so I didn't put all of them back in, you know, I don't want to go to jail exactly yet, but <laughs> not that I would. <laughs> So, so, and I continued to, I, I thought I, I would try to read Caduceus, so, um, and um, uh, I just continued to think about um, intimacy, so what, what it is, you know, so, um, and, uh, and I thought the colors might be interesting, so that's <laughs> why, so, um, thank you so much for coming out, Martha, okay. <laughs> How much you think about sounds? I was just so incredibly interested in the poetic nature of the prose, whether you read things out loud to yourself or you heard them to yourself when you were reading. Always, I always read everything out loud. I, I wouldn't know grammar on the page, so <laughs> I have to hear it. Yeah, so thank you, coming from a poet, makes you very happy to hear. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, no, I um, sonorousness in prose really means a lot to me, and um, uh, we have Dana Johnson here too, has beautiful sonorous prose too. <laughs> Incredible ear. Um, yeah, I, um, I think I think language is so you know gorgeous when it comes off the page and meets you with with, with some kind of music, you know. So, but I um I always say this, and I don't, I don't I always sort of say it jokingly, but I actually mean it. I, I I wanted to be a poet. I started out trying to write poetry, and I wasn't good enough. You have to be really good to be a poet, and um and uh, you know I just so I've I've just trying to salvage what I could salvage. <laughs> So, so, and the Molly of Pink is here too, Molly Vendel. <laughs> so, uh, so, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michelle. That was so lovely. And. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.